when we're talking about the Messianic Jewish community or a Messianic Jewish congregation, we're talking about a place where Jewish people can walk in the continuity of what scripture asks them to do while also having a faith in Jesus, an eternal security, believing he is Lord and that he was raised from the dead on the third day. Well, thanks for joining us and welcome to A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. I'm your host, Ezra Benjamin. And I'm Carly Berna. And we are, in my case, a Jewish, and in Carly's case, a non-Jewish or Gentile uh, believer in Jesus. We share a faith that Jesus, or Yeshua, his Hebrew name, is the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. And he, here we are on this podcast talking about matters that affect you as Christians, as believers, specifically as they relate to Israel and the Jewish people what God's calling us to understand about what's happening today and the action we should take in response. Today, we're talking about indigenous ministry. And, you know, Carly, um, many of us as believers uh, share this idea that we need to be we need to be proclaiming the gospel. We need to be sharing our faith with as many who will listen around the world. And uh, throughout the centuries, that's translated into different kinds of missional movements and church congregation, church and congregational planting all around the world. But I think at the same time, one of the biggest criticisms of those missional efforts is sometimes we make the mistake of saying that not only should somebody believe like I do, but they should look, dress, think, worship, behave like I do. And so we we add on to our faith all these things that really are not indigenous at all, but are just uh, an expression of our own culture, the nation we're from, the language we speak, our own specific faith traditions. And uh, I think in recent years, the Christian community worldwide has, has grown leaps and bounds in understanding that indigenous ministry, meaning people should believe according to the Bible, but express that according to their own uh, culture and their own language and their own clothing and worship style, uh, that's really grown. Um, we, we, have, we have a renewed understanding of the importance of that, and we've seen a real uh, a refreshed response to the gospel. Today, we're going to talk about what that looks like in terms of Jewish ministry. So not just indigenous ministry, but indigenous Jewish ministry, not just in the Jewish communities you know of in North America, Israel, Europe, but more specifically in Jewish communities, in nations you may never have thought about or heard of. Troy Wallace is the Vice President of Congregation and Leadership Development at Jewish Voice Ministries International. Uh, Troy is responsible for our uh, congregation, for Jewish Voices congregational planting efforts, not just the planting uh, and the growth of those congregations, but also the discipleship and training of leaders who will lead those congregations and then on their own go plant other congregations uh, among Jewish communities that have a faith in Jesus and Yeshua. And Troy has given us a few minutes of his time today to unpack this idea of indigenous Jewish ministry. Troy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ezra. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, well, first of all, tell us a little bit about your background growing up, uh, your faith, uh, what that looks like, and how you got involved in Jewish ministry in the first place. Sure. Well, you know, I had a what you might call a Christian salvation experience at five years old that was completely genuine. Um, and over time, my family got involved with a community of Jewish families that believed in Jesus. And so I was eight years old when that happened. And uh, really all of my formative years were inside of a Jewish community 
uh, where everyone there believed in Jesus. The interesting thing was uh, inside of the congregation, I was clearly not Jewish, um, but in the broader world, the broader American society, I kind of uh, behaved like a Jewish person. So it created some very interesting identities in the middle of puberty growing up that I have since worked through. Right. Um, really committed my life in the footsteps of my parents uh, to really live alongside of, among the Jewish people, and also to serve them really mm -hmm. with uh, my time and my life and my even my career, if I could say it mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. And you've committed, I mean, you have kind of this life calling and those who know you, uh, I count you as a good friend and can attest to this lifelong calling to, to build the messianic movement, we can say, uh, not just in America, but around the world. And on previous podcasts, Carly, we've defined this term messianic Jew, Jewish people who believe Jesus is the Messiah, not just for our people, for Israel, but for all nations. Troy, what does messianic movement or messianic community mean? Just unpack that a bit for our audience, building up a messianic movement or community. Well, I think, you know, there's a, lots of incidents of history. Um, I would love to go down into all of the history, but really in the history of the church, uh, Acts 15, the initial Jewish leadership of what became the church historically kind of opened the doors for Gentiles saying, hey, you didn't, don't have to become circumcised. You don't have to do all the festivals and the holidays. You kind of just have to do these four simple things that the apostles in Jerusalem laid out in a letter that, that we have recorded for us in Acts 15. And over time then, as the Gentiles became the super majority in what we might call the church, there was never really a place where Jewish people that believed in Jesus could stay Jewish. And so when we're talking about the Messianic Jewish community or a Messianic Jewish congregation, we're talking about a place where Jewish people can walk in the continuity of what scripture asks them to do while also having a faith in Jesus. And uh, if I may say, uh, uh, an eternal security, uh, believing he is Lord and that he was raised from the dead on the third day. Uh, so the implications there, uh, there's lots of Christian theological overlap, but some of the practices that God asks of the Jewish people, that's just not a church or a Gentile pastor's uh, area of specialty. So we want to be able to create communities where Jews can stay Jews while also taking up a belief that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited one promised to the people of Israel. So those of us who know you, you know, we know you're passionate about healthy Messianic Jewish congregations. And when you're passionate, you know, Troy, you talk louder and more intense and quickly. Um, <laughs> for our audience, who is mostly Christian, what is a Messianic Jewish congregation in America? Like, they probably go to church. What's a Messianic sure. congregation in America? Well, I mean, in some ways, it's a mixture of church and synagogue. Now, if, if, if your listeners are primarily Christians, they might not have a synagogue experience or understand mm -hmm. that. They might have some Jewish friends or maybe attended a friend's bar bat mitzvah growing up. Um, but really, a Messianic Jewish congregation meets on Saturday. Um, most of the time, the, the liturgical component or the worship component of the service experience mixes in Hebrew, um, sometimes alongside of some evangelical uh, uh, forms of worship. Um, there's reading from the Torah, 
so there's just a difference in practices, really, Carly, where Jewish people can still, again, express the things that God asked of, of them, or I'll say in, in my case, of us, um, uh, in the continuity of Scripture. So uh, maybe you want to ask a few more details there, but that's my high level. So for someone who, you know, is a Christian and have never even heard of a Messianic Jewish congregation, what would you say to them? Should they look one up? How would they find one? Are they welcome to attend? Uh, I would say that there are many Gentiles who attend regularly Messianic Jewish congregations. I think, you know, a simple thing is Google Messianic Jewish and your city. See what shows up in, in your map application. Um uh, welcome for sure. I, I think that the intent of the congregation a lot of times is to provide a unique place for Jewish people to stay Jewish. And if there's Gentiles that want to join in that experience, like my parents, for instance, they're welcome to do so. You know, different congregations will have different ways that they ask Jews and Gentiles to behave sometimes. And sometimes there's uh, no difference at all. It just depends on the local community. But I think that most Christians would benefit from at least at least a visit once a Shabbat or maybe some of the biblical Jewish holidays. I think that Gentiles would be enriched to see some Jewish context uh, in their day that they can interact with. And as as Ezra mentioned, you know, you work primarily in Africa in with Messianic Jewish congregations. What does a Messianic Jewish congregation in Africa look like? I mean, there's a lot of similarities in terms of the traditions of the people of Israel or the Jewish traditions because those are rooted in the Bible. Now, how they might actually be expressed locally might be a little different. So if I'm just picturing the work that we do in Zimbabwe uh, among the Lemba people, which there's a lot of history there that, that I won't get into, but they are meeting on Shabbat, just like here in, in the West. Um, but Maybe they're not meeting in a formal synagogue building like we might expect here, uh, but maybe they're meeting under a tree or maybe they're meeting under a very primitive structure that just has a few poles and, and a roof on it to keep them out of the, the elements of the weather. Uh, sometimes it is a fully developed uh, congregational space made out of bricks and all what we might kind of picture in our minds, but the experience is similar in that we're reciting together as liturgy some portions of the scripture that are related specifically to the Jewish people. For instance, the Shema, which comes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Uh, uh, so there's some overlap, but the flavor is different. Maybe the rhythms are different. Maybe uh, the way that they turn liturgical pieces into songs from different tones and, and different uses of music. So there's similarities in their differences. The things that unite the Jewish people around the world since our dispersion from the land of Israel is uh, the Torah and the things from the first five books of the Bible that God tells us to do. I mean, circumcision would be another one, but I don't know if we want to get into that on this discussion here. <laughs> that's, a, that's a topic for another podcast. <laughs> I believe it. Troy, you know, any of us in Jewish ministry, you've heard this, I've heard this. If we've heard it once, we've heard it a hundred times, maybe a thousand, depending on how many years we've been uh, working among Jewish communities. Christians around the world, including the communities that Jewish Voice and, uh, and other partner ministries are serving in Africa, 
are very happy to hear that Jewish people are coming to faith. This is wonderful. They're responding to the gospel. People see this as a fulfillment of scripture. This is great. But then when you get to the issue of this person not going down the street to so-and-so Baptist church or so-and-so assembly of God, all of a sudden Christians and even pastors suddenly have a problem. And the big question we always get asked is, why can't these Jewish believers just go to one of the great existing Christian churches like the rest of us? Why do you have to go to all the trouble and the expense of raising up leaders and planting a messianic congregation? So, uh, and our audience may be asking the same question. Aren't there already churches in Zimbabwe and Ethiopia and the other places where you're working with these Jewish communities? Why do something new? Well, and Ezra, you're right. I mean, we've faced that in the Messianic Jewish community for years. And first I'll say something that maybe would surprise you or our list, listeners, Jewish people can just go to a church. That's totally an open option. The issue is, is that church, is that usually and almost always exclusively a Gentile pastor, are, is the rhythms of the community of again, majority Gentiles or the way that the leader is developing the believer is that going to reinforce a Jewish identity? Or, I mean, I mean, our family happens to go be going to a Christian church right now. So I'm speaking not just from I theory. I'm speaking from our own practical life. But we have to build on the side something for our family on Shabbat, something related to the Jewish holidays, something to create a Jewish ethos within our family unit because our community is not reinforcing it. So a Messianic Jewish community reinforces a, a communal identity among Jewish believers of Jesus that enables them to do what God asked us to do in the Bible. You know, if we're dealing with the inerrancy of scripture, part of the inerrancy of scripture is that God tells the Jewish people to do stuff, leolam va'ed, or for forever and forever. And so we believe that a Messianic Jewish community or congregation or synagogue caters to that ability for a Jewish person who believes in Jesus and has accepted his atoning work when he entered into the heavenly holy of holies with his own blood. Uh, it enables them to live that out inside of the people of Israel. So why not a church? Well, I think I've made a good case, but I want to make sure that everybody listening understands that we're not saying church is not allowed. Uh, we're creating a, an alternative space where Jewish people really are enabled to stay Jewish among the rhythms of community life. Right. That makes sense. Thank you for that. So, you know, we've established, as you said, you made a good case, and I agree. I think Carly may agree, too. Carly, Carly's smiling, which you can't see because this is a podcast, but uh, we're looking at each other here. You made a good case for the existence of these um, Messianic Jewish congregations alongside churches in the countries where there's Jewish people coming to faith along with non-Jewish people. That being said, you know, putting on our, our church planting hats for a minute, for those of us, you know, who have a passion to see people among the nations come to faith in Jesus, uh, Honduran church is not going to look like an American church. And an American church isn't going to look like a Korean church or a Russian church or an Argentine church. So talk a little bit about that, getting into kind of the meat of this podcast today. You have this messianic congregation, let's say, in Zimbabwe. That's not going to look 
and probably nor should it look like the Messianic congregation for our listener who's listening in New York or LA or wherever they are. What does that look like? What should it look like? How do we think about how do we think about a Messianic Jewish expression in the context of cultures that are very different from um, the primarily European or Ashkenazi Jewish culture that you and I know and grew up with here in America? Sure. So, I, I mean, I touched on some of maybe the more practical parts of that with the question that you asked a little earlier, Carly. But Ezra, I think now you're kind of getting into the indigenous part of this. You know, how do we help people who have a, an Israel identity and right. in Jesus continue to walk in that without looking like the Ashkenaz rabbinic experience? I mean, some simple indigenous missions principles apply, which is what you want to impart to the people is the principles of what the Bible has to say. How they walk that out might look different than the Ashkenaz or the European or even the Sephardic or the Eastern Jewish way of keeping or practicing or walking in Torah. But the primary thing that we're looking at most of the time is the text of the Bible. What's mm -hmm text of the Bible tell us to do and then allow the local leadership to determine how. Now, we want to be a place of advice and counsel for them. I mean, the literature of the Ashkenaz sages or the rabbis out of Europe is so rich and wonderful and informative, but we don't want them to feel bound by that as much as we want them to use some of those principles to inform then how their community behaves. Maybe I can use one example. Do we have time mm -hmm. for an example here? Maybe Go for it. Go so for it. Alemba in Zimbabwe they have a, a rich history orally and among their people uh, that they are descended from actually specifically the, the people of Aaron, this very specific part of the Levitical priesthood. Um, and they knew that they had to circumcise their children. But as time went on and they emigrated down into the African continent, they actually changed the rite of circumcision from an eight day old experience among the people of Israel to an eight-year-old experience among the people of Israel. So we got to know them and talk about the practice. Well, why did that develop? Well, our children actually, our boys didn't wear pants until they were seven years old. So we decided to modify from the eighth day to the eighth year. And uh -huh. we talked with them then about the principle from the text, which was the, the covenant is cut on the eighth day. It's a little bit hard to modify that all the way to the eighth year. And so yeah. we started to talk about them and then they got among their elders and among the believers in Yeshua, the believers in Jesus, they're slowly matriculating their culture back to an eighth yeah. day practice. So yeah. maybe that example uh, uh, kind of typifies the way we would handle that. That's a principle of scripture, not just a cultural practice. And so if the cultural practice doesn't line up with the text, we need to challenge that. On the yeah. other hand, the way that they wear a prayer shawl or the way that they cover their head, mm. that's kind of up to them to develop on their own because the principle of scripture is that we're reminded by looking at physical objects, we're reminded of the way that God told us to behave as a people, that is to be holy. Right. Um, so maybe that's an example that 
kind of speaks to that issue a little bit. Yeah, it's a great example, Troy. And Carly's got another question for you before she asks it. I just want to highlight something you said for our audience in terms of any kind of indigenous ministry, but it carries forward into indigenous Jewish ministry, indigenous uh, Messianic Jewish movements in these countries. Uh, you didn't go in. Uh, Jewish voice didn't go in, as I understand it, and look at this eight-year thing, and the first thing out of your mouth was, hey, you 80,000 Lemba, you're wrong. The first thing was, why? And there's a perfectly reasonable answer. They don't wear pants. I mean, when you hear it, you go, oh, of course. Now, then you come back to the text, and you try to figure out how to modify to align with what the Bible has said in terms of that, you know, the Lord calling our people back from all the places where we've been scattered and the traditions we picked up along the way. But Super important, I think, not starting with you're wrong, but starting with explain to me why in your culture there's right. this adaptation. And the thing that I didn't mention there, Ezra, is because their boys were circumcised in the other cultural communities, that became a place of persecution for them. So easier for them to modify their their behavior and avoid persecution, but does that undermine the text a little bit and what God's asking us to do as a people? So an interesting thing that we don't really have to deal with, of course, in the West at all, or even in church life at all, because it's it's a non-issue uh, by the mandate of Acts 15. So Troy, the Messianic Jewish congregations and communities that you're talking about, you know, that you work with in Africa are very remote, like just so our audience understands, these are really remote areas. How did Jewish Voice find these people and how do you know that they're Jewish? Uh, so we found them really out of relationship and research. Um, I think those are the two key components. There's probably a few other more incidental things mixed in there, but uh, in the case of, again, the, the, the Ethiopian Jewish community is known worldwide. So we didn't have to do a lot of research there. How we got introduced to them was through a relationship. In the case of the Lemba, somebody mentioned something to Rabbi Jonathan here at Jewish Voice and uh, a pastor in Zimbabwe. Hey, I heard about the Lemba this. And then we did some research and then we got introduced and started to be able to build a relationship. So those are the two key ways that we found them or they found us. That's how we made a connection. Uh, in terms of how do we know that they're Jewish, Ezra and I have been talking about for years, like how do we make that a simple idea? Because who is a Jew or how do we find Jews? That's a huge discussion in the Jewish community. But when we're working with remote groups like the Lemba uh, in particular, uh, we're really looking at four things. What is their oral history as a people? What is their people culture, their socio uh, their social behaviors. We're looking at their religious identity. For instance, the Lemba continue to practice circumcision. Another thing that they continue to do is a uh, very specific ritual slaughter, uh, which lines up exactly with actually even the Western rabbinic mandates. And then lastly, we sometimes look into DNA. So there's four parts. I'll say it short, oral history, people, culture, religious practice, and maybe DNA can help substantiate that. Um, one more detail there, again, using the Lemba, their oral history is that when Ezra and Nehemiah put away the priests who had married foreign wives, their forefathers left Israel and went on a migration pattern into uh, eventually the southern part of Africa. 
their people culture is they've always maintained, hey, we're the people of Israel, so we don't intermarry. Um, uh, that's a small example. A, a religious identity or religious practices, they still circumcised. I mentioned the, religi- the, the cultural thing. And then when we did their DNA, actually a surprising thing came out of a DNA study in the 70s, and we kind of confirmed it recently with our own small and limited DNA study. There's a great concentration of a specific genetic marker related to people who are known to come from the sons of Aaron, the Kohanim the priests among the people of Israel and their DNA was substantiated their claim significantly. So in, in that case, it was four for four. Um, uh, just incredible things like this that often isn't included in uh, a missions mindset, much less an indigenous missions mindset where we have a group of people that explicitly in a substantiated way can say we come from the people of Israel, and we've maintained that identity over uh, really a couple of millennia. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's helpful. And, and you mentioned there's a lot more to unpack there. Actually, Ezra and I recorded a podcast about the people as the Jewish people all over the world. So if you're interested more, you can go check that out. Um, but we really want to put Troy on the spot and ask him if you if you didn't catch the point that Um, Troy is a non-Jew ministering to Jewish people. We want to put him on the spot and ask him about that. But before we do that, uh, we want to tell you about an opportunity to get involved with us. Um, If you love coffee and you want to support Israel and the Jewish people, we have a great opportunity. Ethiopia is one of the countries we go to uh, where the lost tribes are, where we're sharing the gospel with Jewish believers. Uh, We bring medical supplies, spiritual care, Uh, to these Jewish people, and you can partner with Jewish Voice as we go on these outreaches. Um, As I mentioned, we minister there, but Ethiopia also has great coffee, um, and we have a premier Ethiopian coffee roast. Uh, You can get it, you can become a monthly partner with us and get it as often as monthly or multiple times a year, up to you. Um, So if you're interested in that, you can find that opportunity at ajewandagentiledisgust.org. It's just an easy way to support Israel and the Jewish people um, through coffee, which is probably something you consume every day or every hour if you're like Ezra. Um, So we welcome you to get involved with us. Um, So as I mentioned, uh, Troy, you are a non-Jew ministering to these Jewish people. I know when I started at Jewish Voice, kind of understanding this community and some of our audience might be wondering kind of what right do you have as a non-Jew to minister to these Jewish people and instruct them in the Messianic Jewish practices? So uh, uh, the idea of me having a right, um, I'm not sure it translates exactly into rights and responsibilities the way that we think Mm -hmm. of it from American civil duty uh, ways of thinking, but I'll just talk a little bit about Uh, really Gentiles have always contributed to the building up of the people of Israel. I mean, I think of Rahab, I think of Ruth. Gentiles have always contributed to the building of the people of Israel, particularly when it comes to intermarriage. And of course, I'm married to a Jewish woman and we're raising Jewish children who have that as their identity. Um, So if I have a right, Carly, I'd say that my right is uh, because I'm married into the tribe. Um, So some of our listeners who might feel something in their own hearts towards the Jewish people, I would also say, uh, uh, you know, for me, it's a matter of personal calling. Like 
Really, my parents made a choice for me to grow up inside of a Jewish community that believed in Jesus. And it was awkward for me, uh, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, because I'm a non-Jew living in a Jewish world. Uh, now, I'm a non-Jew who's married into a Jewish family with Jewish children. So I feel comfortable and confident to say we, us, and our, and not just they, them, and theirs. Uh, and I really had am in every way uh, what Paul might talk about as as language of being grafted in, a wild olive branch grafted into the olive tree of Israel. That's me through and through. So I, I think that does provide me with some opportunity. I think there's also a little bit of a biblical mandate to some degree for all believers everywhere. You know, Romans 1.16, uh, the gospel is the power of salvation to all men. Uh, anyone who would believe to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So there's a biblical mandate that's a little bit universal that I think people have to wrestle with. And, and when it comes to ministering to any people group, the Jewish people group is, is one in particular because there's so much in the text and so much context of the people of Israel in the gospel. Um, uh, but really, it's not about ethnicity. It's about authenticity. I mean, I think about African-Americans and Caucasian-Americans trying to minister to one another. I'm one, one example I can think of is a Korean pastor ministering to the Chinese, a Korean pastor that leads a Chinese church. Uh, that was very interesting to listen to him talk. So it's not about ethnicity. It's about authenticity and, and really that you're, you're doing what the Lord's asking you to do. At the end of the day, all of us as we're walking before the Lord, have to do what he asks us to do. So I don't know if I, I think I did the right thing a little bit. I, I do have some right because I'm married in, uh, but I have to be mindful. I have to be careful about how I talk. I have to be careful about how I represent myself. I mean, I'm not just a Gentile ministering to Jewish believers. I'm also a Gentile who's ordained as a Messianic rabbi, which is a bit controversial for some people in our Messianic community. Um, uh, so I have to be very mindful of those things, Carly. And, and as it, with any cultural sensitivity, you have to be sincere. You have to be authentic about it and, and not try to uh, try to wrap it up in something and fake it. And, and oh, I'm Jewish too. No, I'm not. I mean, my kids say, Dad, we're Jews and you're not Jewish, but you do Jewish things because you love us. I mean, that's who I am. That, that's why I think people are are uh, willing to have me minister among them. Mm -hmm. So uh, just to clarify, you don't have to be married into the Jewish community to minister to Jewish people, though. So for like someone like me, no, non-Jewish, sure. yeah. you know, what kind of encouragement would you get to our listeners or me to engage in Jewish ministry, despite my non-Jewish background? Well, I think, again, Paul gives us some sort of biblical mandate about the gospel overall, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. So I think people have to wrestle with that. You know, Carly, in your case, working at Jewish Voice, like you feel like that's what God's asking you to do. And it's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of opportunity. It's a matter of, of where God uh, uh, put you. Uh, when it comes to the general listener, I mean, I can think of a few things that Paul says that should motivate the Gentiles. He does a great job in writing to the Roman, uh, the Roman community of faith and saying, hey, listen, if, if they turned away from the Messiah and it blessed the Gentiles, how much more will their belief in the Messiah mean? He actually says it will mean life from the dead or that will help trigger the resurrection of the dead. So I think we all have a stake in that. 
how do we express that? I mean, one simple way is to visit your local Messianic congregation, get to know the rabbi, get to know the, the Jewish believers in your community and just tell them that you appreciate them. Tell them thank you for the gospel. It doesn't have to be as grandiose as a whole missions program or a whole ministry position. But there's lots of little ways that you can do that. It doesn't even have to be with the Messianic Jewish community. Just get to know the Jewish community in your area and say thank you for the fact that they helped give birth to the Messiah, even if they don't believe in him. Uh, so there's lots of, of different and more practical, very simple ways uh, to be able to express that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So back across the ocean here from, to, sure. to the communities that Jewish Voice and that Troy, you're involved so 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 deeply in serving uh, and growing in primarily Africa along with other places. How do you identify, I mean, you've already said, uh, use the Bible as kind of the framework, right? This basic idea that there's a biblical Jewish identity and that's where we start. How do you identify and affirm maybe things that are extra biblical, but that certainly aren't wrong and that are important to these communities? And I think we all, you know, would acknowledge Indigenous ministry, you know, principles kind of 101 says, don't come in and start criticizing things that are important to people. So how do you, you know, with the Ethiopian Jewish community, with the Lemba, identify these things that you would say, wow, that's that's foreign to my own Jewish experience, but that's important to them. How do we integrate that into what they're building in their own Messianic Jewish expression? It's delicate, I know, but what does that look like? Sure. I mean, really, Ezra... I- Hopefully I'll answer this question the way that you intended to ask it, but really so that we can keep it indigenous and not have kind of like a Western import of what it looks like. We just really, we're going to ask a lot of questions. We're going to be sure that we prioritize relationship above form. and We're going to be invested in them over time. So as we ask questions that are, loving and that are sensitive and we invest in the relationship and they know that we're not just there for like one and done. Um, uh, Mm -hmm. It it really enables us to build the trust that we need to kind of probe questions. Cause there is, while we don't want to impart a Western style of things, we also don't want to allow for syncretism, which is where some things in the local culture that are actually rooted in pagan things, find a way to live alongside of uh, a Messianic Jewish life expression. It, and right. it, it can be a very delicate balance. I mean, in some of the, the circumcision rites attached to the eight-year-old ceremony among the Lemba, there's some delicate things that we've had to talk through there sure. about the way that they do the ceremony and maybe one small example is the way that they invoke the ancestors. Mm-hmm. So there's there's tricky, but it's it's we're committed over time. We're yeah. going to ask questions that are sensitive, and they know that we are there for the relationship, not just to get them to do what we think they should do or tell them to do. Right. And that's yeah. You 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 ask the second part of my question. It's not only affirming the extra biblical, but okay things in these cultures, uh, in the messianic expressions. But, you know, I'm thinking we were together in Zimbabwe a few years ago and, you know, I'm not going to say the specific village or whatever to protect the people, but, you know, one leader came up, loves the Lord, loves Jesus, ready to be involved in congregational, uh, leadership. And he said, I'm so-and-so and here's my wife. And we said, nice to meet you. And he said, and here's my other wife. And we went, wait, 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 wait. 
How do you deal with that when you say, I think something's wrong here? I, yeah. I can't lean into any of my messianic leadership, the relationship, like my spiritual fathers. They've never had to deal with polygamy. And what do we do with someone who's leading the community? And then we're like, oh my gosh, he has got three wives. Uh, and so um, that was very tender. Like I pulled out when we sat down with him. It was with the leadership team, the local leadership team, not our Western leadership team. And we just opened to Paul's words to Timothy and talked about being the husband to one wife. Right. Um, and said, hey, we want you to stay as a member of the community. You just can't hold a spiritual authority position. And to this gentleman's credit, it was amazing. He's still very involved in supporting the community, but he had to relinquish his formal title. So I mean, we've gotten, do we ask them to put away one wife? Like, I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think he's talking about the standards of leadership uh, as part of the body of Messiah. And to one wife is a standard that we've had to deal with. I mean, we had a local... uh, a local chief in one area as well that had a similar experience. And he has real civil authority, but we had to sit with him and lovingly discuss that there's a bit of a boundary between the civil authority and this religious authority among the body of believers. It was a very tricky situation. It was very easy to refer to the text of the Bible, Ezra. So that helped us. It wasn't just a, a Western tradition. Right. So kind of on the other end of the spectrum, one of the biggest criticisms of Western ministry is that the people that you go to They'll say or do whatever they think you want them to so that they get whatever you're offering, you know, whether it's food or money or whatever. How do you avoid that and kind of discern those situations? Well, Carly, I'll kind of lean into the same thing that we do when we're trying to be careful about not importing our culture. If we see that they're just willing to say yes to kind of get our support or uh, get us to agree with them for something, it's the same tactics. We're going to ask questions. We're going to be invested in the relationship, even when it's uncomfortable, and we want to be committed to them over time. Um, So those two things go side by side or they're in parallel, just a little bit different application. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, people have said yes to us because that's the right thing to do in an honor shame culture. Uh, Mm -hmm. We in the West are kind of an aggressive, independent culture uh, we don't have to deal with the same honor, shame uh, uh, contributions, but or, or or complications maybe is a better word. But for us, we just ask a lot of questions. We probe a little deeper. What could maybe with a Western counterpart be a ten minute conversation will be an hour long conversation. Sure. Um, uh, so it's you know you kind of get used to knowing how far you have to press, not to measure someone's willingness or authenticity, but to understand the idea of their yes really being a yes and their no really being a no. It's just a different culture. So you have to figure out how to navigate a yes and a no inside of the local experience. And some of that comes with with our own experience of doing it over time. But really, again, questions, relationship, commitment over time are the three essential parts of that. Right. Not easy, not for the faint of heart, but certainly important to the heart of the Lord and so fruitful as we see these communities just restored to the identity that we really believe God always had for them. It's just kind of been uh, 
on hold for a couple centuries or a couple millennia, as the case may be. We're almost out of time, and we have two final questions for Troy while he's with us today. Before we do that, just a reminder, if you want to partner with what we're doing here at A Jew and a Gentile Discuss through over 100 partner ministries in America, in Israel, in Zimbabwe, in Ethiopia, really all around the world, we would love for you to get involved as a thank you for your monthly partnership with us we want to get you some of this delicious, delicious coffee. I've just finished mine, which is frankly one of the reasons we have to wrap this up because I need another cup. But we want to get some of the best coffee in the world right from Ethiopia into your hands as a thank you for partnering with us. Check out the details, a Jew and a Gentile discuss.org. Uh, final questions for Troy. Take it away, Carly. Yeah. So one of the questions is, you know, as we've said, you're not Jewish, but your wife is Jewish. You're committed to raising a Jewish family. What does that look like, you know, tactically? Really simple example, Carly, and maybe I'll give a couple extra, but every week, every Shabbat, every Friday night, we sit down to the dinner table and we have a routine with our kids. Uh, I mean, it's kind of fun. I'm tempted to do the whole thing right now, but we just ask them some questions about, hey, what do we do for Shabbat? Why do we do Shabbat? Because God created the heavens and the earth. Why else? Because he, he, he led us out of Egypt. Those are, those are two things from the Torah that God says as reasons to do Shabbat. And then we do a rhythm uh, of rest on the following Saturday. And we have people over for uh, communal celebrations around the holidays. Um, we try to create a, just a Jewish ethos in our home. I mean, we're remodeling a house right now, and my father-in-law was in town. So while we were testing swaths of paint colors, we 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 uh, our example paint was little Jewish stars all over the house. I, it's so simple, but again, it's just creating a little bit of a Jewish ethos for our family, and we talk openly about the fact that I'm different. I mean, I gave that example a little bit earlier. You know, Daddy, you're we're Jewish and you're not Jewish, but you do these things because you love us, and that's part of their identity. Um, we have some teaching that we have to do. You know, this past Shavuot or Pentecost, we sat down and looked at uh, the comparison between Exodus 19 and 20 and Acts 2, and they saw that the fire was in common and the loud sounds were in common, and, and there was a, a mountaintop experience in common. And so things like that, Carly, I think very practical. Our kids are young right now, which actually makes it a little bit easier uh, when the the complications of their unique identity will come out in their uh, in their puberty years. We'll have another episode of this podcast and see where we're yeah. at. <laughs> so one last question, kind of unrelated, but since you've done so much travel, you know, to all sorts of countries, what's the sure. weirdest thing you've ever had to eat? Well, you know, interestingly, because... I'm traveling mostly inside of historic Jewish communities. I haven't had to deal with like unkosher foods. So that, that's been a blessing. But I will say that, that the, I'll give you two. Um, I had to eat the liver of an ox one time as like an honorary portion. Like they set that specific portion aside for me as a way to honor me. And I couldn't do it. Like I just, I, I took a bite and swallowed it. And then I turned to the leader who I was with from the local community. And I said, please, I can't eat this. And he was super gracious. The other time I got handed the neck of a rooster, which is a, Yum. another like honorary piece of meat. Uh, and I ate that one. It just took me some work because you have to 
pick through the spine and stuff like oh, that. <laughs> so those are my two most interesting food experiences thus far. Oh man, everybody listening to this at a coffee shop just walked out of the coffee shop. So we apologize to Starbucks and everywhere else that just lost business. I'll stick to bringing you honorary sandwiches when I need something from you. <laughs> That's a good plan. I like it. Yeah. Well, thanks, Troy, so much for joining us. I mean, I think you gave so much good background information about Messianic Jewish congregations and just, you know, what a Messianic Jewish life looks like. So thank you for really that. Really my pleasure. I'm so glad to be a part. So if you want to hear more episodes, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love if you leave us a review, share this podcast with someone you know. You can follow us on social media or go to our website, a Jew and a Gentile discuss.org. There you can leave any questions you have for us or ideas of topics or guests you want us to have. Again, thanks so much for listening. Join us next week for another episode of a Jew and a Gentile discuss. This show is a production of Jewish Voice Ministries International.